Today our scripture reading is going to be taken from 1 Kings 21, verses 1 through 16, and it's page 303 in the Pew Bible, if you'd like to follow along. Now Naboth, the Jezreelite, had a vineyard in Jezreel, beside the palace of Ahab, king of Samaria. And after this, Ahab said to Naboth, Give me your vineyard, that I may have it for a vegetable garden, because it's near my house, and I will give you a better vineyard for it. Or, if it seems good to you, I will give you its value in money. But Naboth said to Ahab, The Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my fathers. And Ahab went into his house vexed and sullen because of what Naboth the Jezreelite had said to him. For he had said, I will not give you the inheritance of my fathers. And he lay down on his bed and turned away his face and would eat no food. But Jezebel, his wife, came in, came, came to him and said to him, Why is your spirit so vexed that you eat no food? And he said to her, Because I spoke to Naboth the Jezreelite and said to him, Give me your vineyard for money, or else if it please you, I will give you another vineyard for it. And he answered, I will not give you my vineyard. And Jezebel, his wife, said to him, Do you now govern Israel? Arise and eat bread, and let your heart be cheerful. I will give you the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite. So she wrote letters in Ahab's name and sealed them with his seal, and she sent the letters to the elders and the leaders who lived with Naboth in his city. And she wrote in the letters, Proclaim a fast and set Naboth at the head of the people, and set two worthless men opposite him, and let them bring a charge against him, saying, You have cursed God and the king, then take him out and stone him to death. And the men of his city and elders and the leaders who lived in his city did as Jezebel had sent word to them, as it was written in the letters that she had sent to them. They proclaimed a fast and set Naboth at the head of the people, and the two worthless men came in and sat opposite him. And the worthless men brought a charge against Naboth in the presence of the people, saying, Naboth, curse God and the king. So they took him outside the city and stoned him to death with stones. Then they sent to Jezebel, saying, Naboth has been stoned. He is dead. As soon as Jezebel heard that Naboth had been stoned and was dead, Jezebel said to Ahab, Arise, take possession of the vineyard of Naboth, the Jezreelite, which he refused to give you for money, for Naboth is not alive but dead. As, and as soon as Ahab heard that Naboth was dead, Ahab arose to go down to the vineyard of Naboth, the Jezreelite, to take possession of it. Good morning. Injustice. That's what we have here. A great injustice. Now, I myself really haven't really uh, experienced any kind of great injustices in this world, fortunately, I guess. Uh, just the ones that are common to normal, everyday people. And you know, we've had bikes ripped off from us when we were kids, had money taken from us, been trying to take advantage of, that sort of thing. But these are just the normal, common things that are, uh, that are common to us. You know, I haven't been hauled before a court under false accusations. 
I haven't had my house threatened to be taken away because of something. Uh, one of the things that we as, as parents, especially living in today's day and age, you always get worried about, you know, is somebody going to say something about your kids or how you're raising them and you get your kids taken away and the dreaded initials, DCFS, you know, and, and things like that. You, you sort of think about these things, but these kinds of things really do happen to folks where there really are injustices. So what do we do about this? This passage has, I think, a lot to say about this. But one injustice that I think I did have um, was an incident that happened many years ago. And some of our small groups, they know this one already. Um, I was a kid, and my mother had cookies. And they were Fig Newtons. And the thing is, we had to, in a house of four boys, you had to basically, my mom had to basically outlaw the cookies, otherwise they'd be gone. And so she had them up in the top cupboard, and they said, no, we, we may not have them because she was saving them for something special. Well, one day, some of the Fig Newtons are gone. And uh, so she questions us, what's, you know, who took them? And was it me? And I honestly, I did not take any. And I can say this with absolute conviction. It wasn't me. And, uh, and so my brother Rich and I, we were hauled before the, uh, the, the court, and we were put on the wooden bench, and uh, we were questioned. And I still think it was him, but uh, we'll, we'll never know. <laughs> but uh, the thing was, is that, you know, we were questioned about it, and I said no. And I, it wasn't me, and he said no, it wasn't him. And so we both got spanked because of lying. Less so because of the cookies, but more so because of the lying. And at the time, oh, that was a great injustice. You know, it was, you know, how could I be punished for something that I didn't do? And it was one of the first times in my life that I'd ever been punished for something I didn't do. I mean, usually, you know, you know when you're guilty, and so you expect it. But this time, I didn't expect it, and I wasn't deserving of it. And yes, I forgive you, mother. No. Anyways, <laughs> the point is, the point is, in retrospect, I can look back and say, you know what? That injustice actually is just a minor, minor thing. In fact, I now look at it as a positive experience because it actually did teach me something. It was a character building thing because it taught us and it taught us as kids that what is most important in life? Integrity, lying. And lying was such a bad thing in our family that you could get caught up in the, in the sweeping out of justice. And that's okay in a sense. And the thing is, I recognized it later as how was my mom to know, you know, and now especially as a parent. And I actually, I really, really do not hold anything against her by saying this, uh, by bringing this story up. I really don't because as a parent, how do you know? You don't know. But there's some things that are just so worth it. So in a sense, it was a good thing for me, even though it was a bad thing that happened. And there's something different that happens here in the story of Naboth. Unfortunately, nothing good comes to him. But we, as followers of Christ, as people who have this written record, these aren't fairy tales. These aren't just stories that build characters or Aesop's fables. These are real events that happen that we can learn from, we can uh, really take comfort in, and teach us how that we can respond to real injustices. In the passage that was just read earlier, uh, we learn about this massive injustice that was done to Naboth. And it was so big that he didn't even have a chance to respond, and he was murdered. So let's open, if you haven't done that already, to 1 Kings chapter 21. And the first thing I'd like to do is start off with verses 1 and 2. 
Verses 1 and 2. Sometime later, there was an incident involving a vineyard belonging to Naboth the Jezreelite. The vineyard was in Jezreel, close to the palace of Ahab, king of Samaria. Ahab said to Naboth, Let me have your vineyard to use as a vegetable garden, since it is close to my palace. In exchange, I will give you a better vineyard, or if you prefer, I will pay you whatever it's worth. Now, King Ahab is actually a bad king. At the time of Israel, he was the worst king. If you flip over probably one page or so to verses 25 and 26, there's a parenthetical statement here, uh, basically that gives the, the reader the summation of Ahab. There was never a man like Ahab who sold himself to do evil in the eyes of the Lord, urged on by Jezebel his wife. He behaved in the vilest manners by going after the idols like the Amorites the Lord drove out before Israel. So this Ahab guy is a bad person here. But I really am not here to focus on the sins of Ahab, or because that's really not the, the issue. The issue is not cursing the darkness. The, the issue is learning from it so that we can re uh, rejoice in the light and we can get our lives in the light here. The first thing, though, that Ahab does is he covets another man's field. And this is in direct violation of the last of the Ten Commandments, uh, you shall not covet your neighbor's field. And that's exactly what Naboth did. Because the city of Jezreelite, uh, Jezreel was a, a fortified city. This is what the historians uh, basically tell us. that, And in a fortified city, you have the king and his palace. It may have been a secondary palace, maybe not the, the main palace where he lived. But it was a place to where he goes, to where he knows he has a secure army, to where uh, they have high walls. And for that, you need provisions. So when he sees that vineyard, he says, hey, that's a great vineyard. That would be perfect for me and my purposes. And Ahab actually makes a pretty fair deal here on the surface of it. You know, in today's day and age, you'd think, well, there's nothing wrong with that. Uh, he offers him either a trade or he offers him something, you know, I'll give you some cash for it. Deal? Naboth says, no deal. And the reason Naboth does that is not because He's greedy for money, and, and he realizes, well, this field is worth 50 shekels, but since it's the king and he can afford it, and he really wants it, I'm going to charge him 100. It wasn't anything like that. The reason Naboth rejected this is because he actually honored God more than he cared about making money off of the, uh, the field. How did he honor God? By basically, we see this from his answer in verse 3. He replies, the Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my fathers. See, and this was the big deal. Naboth responded in righteousness. He responded with a righteous rejection. The deal is, with the land of the Israelites, that land was not theirs to buy and sell the way that we're used to land. Um, your typical person will move, I think, six times or so in their life or something like that. And, uh, you know, for us, we buy a house. We either have to move on or grow out of it, or for some other reason, we want to move somewhere else. We sell it, and that land is, who cares? And that's the way it is with, with our previous houses. We may have good memories towards them, but we have no right to them. We have no claim to them. We have no, at least hopefully, we don't have any even heart attachment to our old houses and our old lands and property. That's the way we're brought up. But in the days of Israel, when the Hebrews crossed into the Promised Land, they had to conquer. God told them to conquer the nations. But they weren't able to just basically say, I'm going to conquer this land and this is going to become mine and no one else's. That's not the way it worked. First they conquered the land 
And then they had a great divvying up of the land, and they cast land by lots. So they divided things up, and they said, who gets this land? And then this tribe got this land, that tribe got this land, that tribe got this land. And within the families, the family units then got subplots of land. And these family units um, were not supposed to buy and sell the land the way that normal people would. The land was supposed to remain in the family. Even every 50 years, the year of Jubilee, any land that you had sold now goes back to the family. And so if you sold a land in year 49, you would actually discount the price of the land knowing that one year later, that land is going to have to go back to you. And so the, the whole system was created by that, a very strange system. But the reason it was, and the reason that we can, I can say that it was strange from a worldly point of view, is because it was God's way of showing the people, this land is my gift to you. Cherish it. Cherish my gift. And so in the days uh, of Israel here, the possession of land was both the substance and the symbol of God's providence to them, to the people. That wasn't something to just be taken lightly. And so, and that's what Naboth, that's how he responds to this. Ahab thinks anything that he wants, he can get. Naboth realizes, this is from God. I've got to hold on to this. I'm going to cherish this. And so because he has a righteous response um, to this, uh, this request, Ahab then has a bad response to him. In verse 4, we read what Ahab's response is. And it's kind of interesting that the mighty king here goes home like a sullen, spoiled, weak child. So Ahab went home, sullen and angry, because Naboth the Jezreelite had said, I will not give you the inheritance of my fathers. He lay on his bed sulking and refused to eat. Which is pretty weird, you know, and I don't really have, I can't really explain why this character Ahab was the way he was. Again, it actually makes no difference in my life why he was. What matters is what God is trying to teach us here. And uh, so that's what happens to Ahab, but things now go horribly wrong for Naboth. Let's read verses 5 through 10. His wife Jezebel came in and asked him, Why are you so sullen? Why won't you eat? He answered her, Because I said to Naboth the Jezreelite, Sell me your vineyard, or if you prefer, I will give you another vineyard in its place. But he said, I will not give you my vineyard. Jezebel, his wife, said, Is this how you act as king over Israel? Get up and eat. Cheer up. I will get you the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite. So she wrote letters in Ahab's name, placed a seal on them, and sent them to the elders and nobles who lived in Naboth's city with him. In those letters she wrote, Proclaim a day of fasting and seat Naboth in a prominent place among the people. But seat two scoundrels opposite him, and have them testify that he has cursed both God and the king. Then take him out and stone him to death. In the ESV versions, uh, the two scoundrels are called worthless men. And, uh, you know, worthless men sounds very judgmental. And so I'm going to stay with the scoundrel thing because I think that, that sums up more of the spirit of what these, these two guys here were. Scoundrels, people who would basically do anything as long as there's enough gold behind it. Unfortunately, what happens for Naboth is that his righteous act invites injustice by the wicked. And oftentimes, that's the way it is in life. When you as a righteous person do something that is righteous, oftentimes you put an open invitation or a target on you 
for the injustice of the wicked. And it's strange, and I can't really explain why that is, except that the devil hates goodness. He hates the people of God, and he'll do anything he can to attack them. But that's oftentimes what happens. When you stand for justice, often you will get a tar- you will become a target of the unrighteous and of uh, this kind of injustice here. Never more do we see this in action than in Jezebel's plot. And she has a really devious plot here because what she does is she basically uses the law of the Hebrews to trap Naboth. She herself wasn't um, a Jewish or part of Israel. She was a Sidonian. So she was a foreign, uh, she was a daughter of a foreign king. So she came with her own gods, with her own way of doing things. Uh, she probably had no regard. Well, we, it's clear she had no regard for the ways of the Lord based on what we've learned about her in the last several weeks in the dealings with Elijah. And so, But she is very crafty. So she realizes, how can I get this Naboth? I know, I'll use his own law against him just by twisting things around. So what does she do? She calls a fast. That sounds like a very good and noble, um, a righteous thing to do. And then she has Naboth, this righteous guy, who is probably known in his city. This is probably, you know, we're not know this for sure, but we can surmise that he was probably a good man, a man of standing. So she has him sit, uh, stand in the place or sit in the assembly. And then she uses these two scoundrels to basically accuse him of two things. One, cursing God, which according to the law of Moses is a capital offense. And two, cursing the king, which is a capital offense in just about anybody's kingship. Um, so she tries to get him from both ways. And she's even smart enough to realize that the Mosaic law can, um, has to have two witnesses. You have to have two witnesses to, for a capital punishment to kill anybody um, who did any of these bad things. One witness was not enough. So she's really smart. She gets all these things aligned against him, and it's all because of one lie. She uses this law to trap him. And his trap is so secure that he has no way to really get around it. What's his word to two other people's word? And so without much hesitation, without much deliberation, the people see what's going on and say, well, if this is the case, take him out of the city where, again, you're supposed to stone people. You're not supposed to stone them right there. You're supposed to expel the immoral person, expel the wicked from among you. That's what they do. They take him out and they stone him to death. And that's the end of Naboth. Injustice. And there was nothing for him to do. He had no recourse in any way. It's important to know that anyone who wants to, to live a righteous life needs to be prepared for the inevitable probability that some kind of injustice may happen in this world. We don't know when, we don't know how, uh, you don't know what might happen, but we have to be prepared for that. And that's what this morning's message is about, is being prepared for injustice. How do we be prepared for injustice? It's in the title. God requires faith in the face of injustice. He doesn't require us to be stronger than the, the people doing us. He doesn't require us to be more clever. He doesn't require us to necessarily just uh, you know, sit back and let it happen and just, you know, say, woe is me. Uh, he requires faith. Allow me to uh, mention some other passages in the Bible that highlight this, because the Bible is full of cases of people who've experienced justices and injustice, rather, and also warnings and encouragement and teachings about how we are to deal with judgments, uh, injustice, I'm sorry. 
And the first we'll find is in Matthew 5, uh, the Beatitudes. Jesus tells people from the very beginning of his ministry. He says in, in uh, uh, Matthew 5, verses 10 and 11, Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. See, Jesus ties in his present ministry with the future of what's going to happen, with what has happened already. And that's what I love so much about the Bible. I, I kind of, I sort of like going off on these little tangents here and there about just the unity of the Bible. And allow me to do this right now. This is what I love about the Bible is that it blends the past, the present, and the future all together. You know, this isn't just some random book of thoughts. You know, God's way is clear. You know, when uh, the word of the Lord says, you know, I, the Lord, don't change. I'm the same yesterday, today, and forever. Even though he may deal with us differently from time to time, he really is the same. And the same principles apply here. And it's strange that Jesus would start his ministry by saying, blessed are those who are going to suffer because of me. But that's what he needs to prepare us for. And that's what we have to be prepared for. You know, surely we remember Job and all the injustice that came upon him. And he was totally totally in the clear. And even to the point, when you, when you real, uh, read the story of Job, you realize that the only reason he was targeted was because God was bragging on him. And God was saying, see my servant Job? There's nobody like him. And the devil says, oh yeah? The only reason he's good, he's righteous, is because you bless him so much. Take away his blessings and he'll curse you. And God says, really? Well, let's try and find out. So from Job's perspective, it was a great injustice that was happening to him. But what did he maintain throughout that entire time? A time of suffering, time of pain, time of even being angry with God. What did he maintain? He maintained his faith in God. And that faith caused him never to curse God. See, God was teaching us through Job that we have to have faith in the face of injustice. It's very uh, interesting that what um, Werner had prayed just a little bit ago about the great cloud of witnesses. Somehow he must have stole a peek at my notes because we're going to be going there to Hebrews 11. And I do want you to turn. Everyone, please turn to Hebrews 11. This is a very important passage here. Verses 35 through 40. The great cloud of witnesses. And this is the great faith chapter. And I want to first start off with uh, verses 35b, the second half of 35, through verse 40. Others were tortured and refused to be released so that they might gain a better resurrection. Some faced jeers and flogging, while still others were chained and put in prison. They were stoned. They were sawed in two. They were put to death by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted and mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and in mountains and in caves and holes in the ground. These were all commended for their faith, yet none of them received what had been promised. God had planned something better for us, so that only together with us would they be made perfect. This is, a uh, again, one of these passages that sometimes it's hard to read. Why? Why do the righteous have to go through this kind of injustice? What do they deserve or do to deserve this? 
And God says, it's nothing that you deserve to do because of punishment. It's what you will accomplish through my power working in you. You will accomplish faith. You'll accomplish a better resurrection. You'll glorify me. You'll perfect yourself. Not that we can be made sinless through, uh, through suffering. I'm not saying that. But as it says, a better resurrection. What is a better resurrection? It's, it's basically saying that you don't care about this life, that you're more concerned about the afterlife. You're more concerned about your resurrection than you are about your comforts here and now. On the face of it, that's hard to accept. I can't accept that with my mind. The only way that I can accept that is through faith. That's what God is doing here. This is the faith chapter. And I want to kind of rewind things a little bit and just sort of summarize. Uh, more than likely, you have uh, paragraph breaks. You may even have the little subheadings of the different people in here. And I'm going to kind of rewind this a little bit and just cover by faith and who is the object of that faith. Follow along with me. By faith, we. By faith, Abel. By faith, Enoch. By faith, Noah. By faith, Abraham. By faith, Abraham again. By faith, Abraham yet again. By faith, Isaac. By faith, Jacob. By faith, Joseph. By faith, Moses' parents. By faith, Moses. By faith, the people. By faith, the walls of Jericho. By faith, the prostitute Rahab. All these people did everything they did by what? By faith. Everything great that was accomplished was done by faith. And the writer of Hebrews is saying here, all these things were done by faith. And by the way, others were persecuted, were mistreated, were sawed in two, went about in sheepskins, were, had to hide in caves. Yes, some people by faith did great things. And other people, by that same faith, are able to face injustice and stay true to the end. That's what we need to do here. That's what this lesson is all about. That's what God is teaching us here. What strikes me as unique about Naboth and the story that we've read here is that he was an ordinary, righteous man. He didn't ask for trouble. He didn't purposely put himself in the spotlight. He wasn't angling things for his own benefit. He was just a normal, regular person going about his regular day. He didn't ask the king to come and offer the land. And all of a sudden, he finds himself probably a day or two or, or whatever later dead, just like that, all because he was righteous. He basically had a very bad day. And that's the way injustice comes upon us oftentimes, a very bad day. We don't always have time to prepare for that day. We don't always have time to, uh, to try to figure out events, to call your lawyer, to call, the, uh, to call Jay Sekulow, uh, the, uh, the Christian lawyer to bail you out. We don't always have that ability to do that. But what we need to do is build our faith ahead of time so that we can have this kind of faith in the face of injustice. What sort of faith do we need? What kind of faith am I talking about? Faith to know that God is not idle. Faith to know that God is at work. Faith to know that God's delay in justice is okay. He doesn't have to respond immediately. And faith, ultimately, to know that God wins in the end and that he will always dish out justice. He will. Faith that God is not idle. Let's go back to 1 Kings 21 because, as the, uh, the famous saying goes, and now we'll talk about the rest of the story. 
because there is something else to learn from this. Back to 1 Kings 21. We're going to read verses 17 through 26. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite. Go down to meet Ahab, king of Israel, who rules in Samaria. He is now in Naboth's vineyard, where he has gone to take possession of it. Say to him, this is what the Lord says. Have you not murdered a man and seized his property? Then say to him, this is what the Lord says. In the place where dogs licked up Naboth's blood, dogs will lick up your blood. Yes, yours. Ahab said to Elijah, so you have found me, my enemy. I have found you, he answered, because you have sold yourself to do evil in the eyes of the Lord. I am going to bring disaster on you. I will consume your descendants and cut off from Ahab every last male in Israel, slave or free. I will make your house like that of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, and that of Baasha, son of Ahijah, because you have provoked me to anger and have caused Israel to sin. And also concerning Jezebel, the Lord says, Dogs will devour Jezebel by the wall of Jezreel. Dogs will eat those belonging to Ahab who die in the city, and the birds of the air will feed on those who die in the country. There was never a man like Ahab who sold himself to do evil in the eyes of the Lord, urged on by Jezebel his wife. He behaved in the vilest manner by going after idols like the Amorites the Lord had drove out before Israel. Elijah comes back on the scene and confronts Ahab with a word from the Lord. Elijah basically states it as fact that because you, Ahab, have done this wicked thing, God is going to strike you dead. And not only you, but your family. And not only is it going to be a a nasty kind of death, he's also going to take your wife and she's going to be devoured by dogs. And that's going to be a death that's real fitting for a king and a queen, right? Absolutely not. No funeral pyre, no grand procession, no uh, you know embalmment, no tombstone, dying like a worthless criminal. That was the punishment that was going to happen to them. We have to learn from this that even though for Naboth there was no justice, God was not idle. God was not just sitting around doing nothing. God was at work. God was in the, at work getting Ahab, um, I'm sorry, Elijah to confront Ahab. He was uh, basically giving his judgment and he was going to work things out in the end. So if we can realize and we can have faith that God is not idle, can we have faith when things don't go our way? Can we have faith that when injustice happens to us that we don't start worrying, God, where are you? This isn't supposed to go this way. God, are you not doing anything? Are you not hearing? God is, is not idle. God is always at work. Why should we have to worry that God is not doing something when we unjustly suffer physical pain or we unjustly lose our job or we unjustly get something taken from us or when we unjustly get uh, taken advantage of? Why should I not get bent out of shape and, and worry that God is not doing something when I've got a customer who owes us 15 grand, who's three months late, and then we just find out he doesn't even have the bank financing yet, has no intention of paying yet. And then I got to preach a sermon on this Sunday that God requires faith in the face of injustice. And here I am sitting at my desk, ah! 
What am I going to do? Oh, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to have faith. Faith that God will work things out. Even if I don't see the answer right away. You know? And that's what God does for us. Even if it causes us momentary pain. God is at work. He may be at work in condemning the other person. He may be at work in bringing that other person to mercy. He might be at work in just refining your own heart and trying to strip away any kind of bitterness or anger or things that are natural for you. You know, I know what my natural reaction is to injustice. You know, when you listen to things on the news, sometimes I have to turn the news off because I can feel, you know, my heart start pumping. It's like, ah, this is why we, this is why our police have guns, you know? This is why we have a standing army that has a lot of lethal weapons to deal with this stuff, you know? But life isn't like that. We can't do that. And so God has to refine that in me to wind me down and to have faith instead of just action. Our God is at work. We should never question, does God know what he's doing? But while we can't dictate to God how he should work, we need to have faith to know that he is. And we should also have faith to accept that God's delay in justice is usually an offer of mercy. Let's read verses 27 through 29. When Ahab had heard these words, he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth, and fasted. He lay in sackcloth and went around meekly. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite. Have you noticed how Ahab has humbled himself before me? Because he has humbled himself, I will not bring this disaster in his day, but I will bring it on his house in the days of his son. Mercy is oftentimes the, the reason for God's delay in justice. This lesson has really taken root in me, in me over the years. Uh, a case in point is with criminals. You know, anytime you hear a story about criminals, you're like, man, just, you know, string them up, you know? Deal with this. Let's get this over with. Why do we waste our time with these kinds of criminals? That's not the right response that God wants us to have. That's not the response of faith. God wants us to be more concerned about that person finding Jesus than he is about us demanding justice. And that's sometimes a hard lesson for us to, to really realize, especially when there's a lot of bad things out there. And there's a lot of bad people out there who really do deserve what they get. But it's more important that God displays his mercy. Because after all, would we want God to delay justice with us when we do something wrong? Would we want to have God immediately deal with us every time we do something not right? Of course not. In the same way that we've received mercy, that's the kind of mercy that we need to be able to offer to other people, even the most vilest of people. There's a, um, an obituary that I read in the paper uh, a couple of months ago. It's about a politician. He was a congressman from, I believe it was Texas. And this was a, a guy who was um, not a very moral character. He was apparently a womanizer, a drinker, and he didn't really hide it either. He didn't really care about it. He was a, you know, one of these backroom uh, dealers, you know, political dealers, one of those kinds of guys. And in the, in the obituary, they wrote about him that he was quoted as saying, um, after some other politician got busted for something, he said, yeah, if I ever get caught, yeah, I'm not going to blame anybody else, and I'm not going to suddenly find Jesus. You know, and I thought to myself, you fool. You know, what a fool. 
And I understand where he's coming from. I, and I understand where a lot of the people who he was saying this to would be coming from, to think, oh yeah, yeah, once somebody gets in trouble, then they find Jesus, then they become religious, you know, and then they try to, you know, and it happens. We've seen it on the news over the years plenty of times. We'll see the politician walking with the Bible in their hand after a scandal. But anyway, it's not for us to judge that. It's for us to say, hopefully they will find Jesus. And hopefully they'll find Jesus in a major way. One of the, I had a guy who was working for us, and um, he said that that's basically what happened to him. He went to prison. When he got into the cell, there was a, uh, a Christian salvation track on the, on the bed. He opened it up, he read it, and he said he gave his life to the Lord. Now, if hey, praise the Lord, you know. Who am I to judge that? And, uh, but yet, if you were probably the victim of whatever crime that guy did, you would probably have a different opinion. Or at least your first reaction would be. We're not to act by the flesh when these things. We ought to act by faith. Faith says that isn't there something we can do about injustice rather than let's just deal with it now. Faith says, I hope that criminal gets saved. Faith says, I wish the Lord would return soon and just, you know, put to end of these things rather than saying, you know, this world is just, you know, going to pop. Faith says, people, we really have to pray for the persecuted church rather than just, you know, gnashing our teeth at evil. Faith is required for us to hang on to the fact that God will administer justice in the end. One of the things as I get older, um, I start looking a little bit more at the finish line. And uh, this is just a natural consequence of old age. It is unfortunately a result of when you start seeing the older generation pass away. And you start thinking about your own mortality. You start thinking more about finishing well. And the book of Revelation has become so much more um, encouraging for me over the years. So much more even exciting as I read it. Why? Because now, finally, God wins in the end. Now, it's not that God is losing now. I don't mean to say it like that. But God's victory is final. It's complete in the end. And I do want to just go a couple of places here. In Revelation 6, 9 through 11. Revelation 6, 9 through 11. Here's what John sees. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they had maintained. They called out in a loud voice, How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? Then each of them was given a white robe, and they were told to wait a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and brothers who were to be killed as they had been was completed. Doesn't that encourage you? In a roundabout way, it should encourage you. And in a way, it does. Because this passage speaks to me that God is in full control. We get the Voice of the Martyrs newsletter. And if you haven't been familiarized with that, you kind of wonder, where is God through all this? Why is this world, and I'm not to say this lightly, going to hell like this? How can this be happening? God is still in control. We see that right here. And that even though it's not fun, it's not good, it's not something I really look forward to, 
I don't look forward to being a martyr. I don't want that to happen. But yet, God has given us more commands and encouragements and warnings in the Bible that we have to be prepared for that than he has that we're going to somehow escape. If you flip a few more pages over to uh, Revelation 13, it's another similar passage. Revelation 13, verses 5 through 10. This is now about the Antichrist and the beast. The beast was given a mouth to utter proud words and blasphemies and to exercise his authority for 42 months. He opened his mouth to blaspheme God and to slander his name and his dwelling place and those who live in heaven. He was given power to make war against the saints and to conquer them. And he was given authority over every tribe, people, language, and nation. All inhabitants of the earth will worship the beast, all whose names have not been written in the book of life belonging to the lamb that was slain from the generation of the world. Now, here's the important thing. He who has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to go into captivity, into captivity he will go. If anyone is to be killed with the sword, with the sword he will be killed. This calls for patient endurance and faithfulness on the part of the saints. These are just snippets that I'm giving you of the terrible times that the saints are sure to see in the future. Will this be us? I personally don't know. And nobody on earth knows that for certain. God knows, and only God knows. Jesus made that clear. As far as the times and the dates, only the Father knows these things. Will we be saved from this? I hope. 